This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Welcome to Trashy Divorces. Hey everybody, welcome back. Trashy D, this week. It's a big one. It's a big one. It's been, a, it was a fun, two good stories. Two good, two complicated stories two and, com- and, a, and a little, a little heartbreaking stories. Uh, there were some tears. Yeah. When I Paint My Masterpiece, great song by Bob Dylan. Best cover I found is by The Band, which if you need a band to like, you can't do better than The Band. I mean, it's called The Band. Which... We're going to talk about our stories in a second, but first... Patreon was hopping this it, week, Stacy. It's been it's been a crazy big week. Lots of fun stuff happening there. So much fun stuff happening on Patreon. You guys may want to consider coming on over. Lots of new patrons joining us. Let's talk. Let's give a thanks to our new patrons. Sure, Jamie and Katrina, Nicole, Melanie, Maricia and Carrie, Kimberly and Rachel, and holy smokes, Casey upped patronage this week casey was a two dollar supporter now casey is a ten dollar supporter we're totally sending you an extra prize when thank yous and gifts mail the first week of may so be on the lookout everybody y'all rock thank you for supporting us over there i hope you're finding all of the trash candy that you hope to find yeah we are trying so hard to make sure that it is worth your while and i know alicia in particular is having a ball with it right now dude this week has been a lot of fun stay tuned for the commercial break we're going to tell you all about it yep so this week this week i covered the trashy divorce of dominic and ellen dunn you're like dominic dunn who's that i was yes uh, maybe no listeners are i don't know I'm going to tell you, super trashy divorce, closeted life, marriage, kids, came back with a whole second career as a justice warrior writer where powerful people getting away with shit was his thing. And he is the godfather of all my trash candy and I love him. He really, a you, good divorce. you have been referencing him the entire time I have known you. So it's six degrees of Dominic Dunn. I'm happy that you finally got to tell the full story because I've always been like, yeah, that guy sounds, oh yeah, cool. He's cool. Yeah. What now, and now you know. Now I know. Who'd you cover this week, Stacey? Oh boy. Uh, oh boy. I've got. The new love of your life. The new love of my life, Frida Kahlo and her marriage and divorce and remarriage to Diego Rivera. These are two giants of 20th century art and in particular of like Mexican art deities and... Talk about painting your own masterpiece. My God, Frida Kahlo's life was so much, so much more like spent in so much more pain, physical. Like, I just didn't know. I didn't know. I learned so much about that story. Yeah, me too. It was Um, great. Anyway, I'm so, again, it's like when we finish with people who've already departed the world, I'm like, oh, I want to, I want to catch up on what they're doing now, but your uh, new ghost girlfriend, I do not have insight sure into what they're doing now. So is Frida Kahlo. You ready to do this? May as well. Ruby seems ready with her little barking. Thanks everybody for yet another week yep. of tuning in to Trashy Divorces. Please enjoy the episode. Cheers y'all. See you on the flip. Good morning, Alicia. Hi. Hi. Good morning, good evening. Good whatever time zone you're in. True. Australia. Australia could be <laughs> any time. Australia. 
You ready for today's exciting trashy divorce? Yeah, I understand. You've um, sort of done me a solid by I, covering somebody who you know and are very enthusiastic about and I'm like vaguely aware of. Since you are my favorite alien. Yes. It occurs to me. Just landed. Just landed. You're my very favorite alien. I am planning a whole Wednesday Fun With Done series that's Mm -hmm. already started. So there are so many stories coming up in like the next 11 weeks that are all Dominic Dunn adjacent, sort of planted in this story. Right. That you don't know who he is. (laughs) I mean, vaguely, vaguely, yeah. This one is for you. This summer is going to be way more fun for you if you have this story. Some background, yeah, some baseline knowledge. Okay, thank you. I appreciate that. And And I think... I suspect there are a lot of people in the world who are actually like me. There's, yes, that is true. I know you think everyone is actually all into the trash candy to the degree that you are. And, and no, I that's, bet not, that's possible. not quite right. Yeah. <laughs> so anyone out there who is already true crime or society gossip adjacent probably already knows the name of Dominic Dunn. Sure. If you were like Stacy and a little, little new to our ways and customs here. What? Who is Dominic Dunn? He is the best-selling author of works like The Two Mrs. Grenvilles, a thinly-veiled account of Billy and Ann Woodward and their little trashy divorce murder scandal. Maybe you know him from A Season in Purgatory, a thinly-veiled account of the Skagel family and their involvement with the murder of Martha Moxley. And see, I'm familiar with the Skagel case a little, like, okay. Dominic Dunn had a lot to do with getting that case reopened and Michael Skagel tried. Because of a season in Purgatory. Yes. All right, well. No, he's a warrior for justice. Okay. Perhaps the novel An Inconvenient Woman is familiar too. A thinly-veiled account of the super trashy story of Alfred Bloomingdale Betsy Bloomingdale, his high society wife, and his mistress, Vicki Morgan. Hmm. Okay, so Dominic Dunn has also given us an intersection of true crime and society gossip on the monthly in Vanity Fair for about two decades, from the early mid-80s to into the 2000s. Okay. He has been at the hot seat in most of the big celebrity trials since the 80s, Klaus Van Bulow trials, the O.J. Simpson trial, the Menendez brother trial, the Skakel trial, Phil Spector. He's written about all of them. Fascinating. What I'm hearing is several people who I think are on our list to cover because of their trashy divorces. Is that true? Yeah. Well, it, six degrees of Dominic Dunn, man. I gotcha. can get there. Gotcha. I could Kevin Bacon, move over. <laughs> okay. He also, Dominic Dunn also produced and hosted a series called Power, Privilege, and Justice throughout the early 2000s. A program, like an hour-long program, focusing in on the details of some of these cases and other ones that he may have found interesting. And so, just based on the name, I feel like it might be timely for me to go do a rewatch as I'm developing a stronger and stronger interest in the very different ways that our justice system treats, I don't know. Our justice system is fucked. Rich white people versus poor anyone versus people of color versus women of color. I've got like, this. I've got a story. So he's a big time justice writer. Okay. That's and very cool. He's especially big time when it comes to powerful people getting away with shit. Which, hello. He is the, <laughs> he is so right up here. You're going to have the best summer. And he's, he's no longer with us. Is that right? No, correct. Because, okay, because he would. 2009. He would be. He would love trashy whoa. divorces. Well, no, and just the, the world today. With oh, this, I, I mean, I think the term is pig and shit. So, yeah. Powerful people getting away with shit. This mm-hmm. was his, that was his 
trash candy. That's they're going to replace um, one nation under God with that with powerful people getting, <laughs> getting away, away with, with shit. shit. So Dominic Dunn is the godfather of my trash candy. I cannot remember a time where I did not love everything about this peculiar, amazing man. In his books, he writes under the pseudonym. So when he talks about himself, he uses the name Augustus, Gus Bailey, who is not at all a thinly veiled gay man. I mean, of Th- course he's gay. You mean thinly gay. veiled. You mean he's obviously a gay man. He's obviously a gay man. Of course he's gay. But in his fictional writing, he also gives a name to his ex-wife named Peach, which is so sweet. Like, she seriously is a peach of a girl. Aww. And it makes you curious. Like, we know him from the early 80s onward. What happened of the life before Dominic Dunn breaks out of the scene to become a writer. I mean, he didn't do that until his mid fifties. So what happened from 50 before to get to the point where you're writing about powerful people getting away with shit in a, in a, as a thinly veiled gay male character or not. Exactly. um, And in fiction again, in the eighties, still not, still not a cool thing to do to be. And the 1950s Uh, and the 1930s. That just so enough delay. It all starts with a wonderful love story and a trashy divorce. Okay. Are you ready for the tale of Ellen and Dominic Dunn? Yeah. Our couple, Ellen. Born January 28th, 1932. She's an Aquarius, air sign. <laughs> Dominic, born October 29th, 1925. Scorpio, which is weird why I love him so much, but I do. True. He's a water sign. So Aquarius and Scorpio are an interesting mix because they are both fixed signs. There are signs in the Zodiac that are fixed and mutable. And okay, so fixed signs, Aquarius, Scorpio, Leo, Taurus. The deal with fixed signs is that they are associated with stabilization, determination, depth, persistence. But those opposite qualities, sometimes fixed signs, tend to be inflexible, rigid, stubborn, opinionated, and single-minded. Sure. So we're already going into... Right. Oh, I can see... Yeah, like the, right? the the light and dark sides of so the light the, and dark the, side the of this. good and evil. Yeah. Okay. Well, hold on. The thing about Aquarius and Scorpio in particular is that they are both, in a way, outcasts and rebels. So Scorpio represents all of the emotions we don't want to deal with, and Aquarius sort of brings in a way of thinking that most of us are not ready for. So think about that. Everything you don't want to deal with. Let's think about things you're not ready for as the two power players in this story. It's really kind of fitting. Yeah, okay. Okay. It is best to look at Scorpio and Aquarius as announcers of change because this is what they will bring into each other's lives. Just put that post-it note in. Okay. Ellen comes from quite a distinguished family. She's born in 1932 on the Yerba Buena Ranch outside of Tucson. Her dad is a big-time Chicago industrialist, Thomas F. Griffin, who founded the Griffin Wheel Company, which supplies wheels for the nation's railroads. Makes a little cash, buys a 30,000-acre plot in Arizona, Nogales. Yerba Buena Vista Ranch, which was actually part of the 1700 Spanish land grant. Like, this tract of land has been around a long time. Okay. Ellen's mom is Beatrice Sandoval Griffin, And the Griffins have this land and they sell off pieces because it's a huge tract, but they keep about a thousand acres in their family trust for themselves. Yeah, that's plenty of dirt. Plenty of dirt. Ellen attends Miss Porter's school in Farmington, Connecticut. 
Miss Porter's school is a big fancy boarding slash day, about two thirds are boarders, a third are day. It's known as Porter's MPS Farmington. It's KOABD. It is a big deal when it comes to boarding schools, girls, private girls school. It is right now the number one girls boarding school is ranked by U.S. News. It's been around right now. now. Wow. 1843, I think, is when the school was founded. So this thing. Miss Porter's is legendary in high society circles. Gotcha. Okay. So that, yeah, this is where the best families in the country send their daughters to continue the legacy of being best families in the country. So I looked up a list of notables who have graduated from Miss Porter's. Okay. And just in the time that Ellen Griffin was attending there, some of her classmates, Lily McKim Pulitzer, Lily McKim at the time, really rich family who married a Pulitzer, her divorce may come up in the future, as well as Jacqueline Bouvier. I know you're shaking your head. It is- Jacques no. Bouvier. Jacqueline Eugenie. It's important to pronounce people's names right. I I, I agree with that actually, but it, it Jacqueline is. is the way that she pronounced her I name. I know. There's no way for an American to say it that doesn't sound affected, though. You know, like well, Elizabeth Taylor never liked to be called Liz. Like, let's go ahead and right, but she didn't want people to call her like Elizabeth. Elizabeth. You know? Right. Okay. Miss Porter's alumni. I know this is a word that means so much. Like, I know you... I'm not even kidding. Correct you guys usage of the alum term. Going to have a little trashy divorces oh grammarian lesson here. A little college... Uh, Miss Porter's class. alumni call themselves ancients. If you're screaming right now in your car, or in your kitchen, or your bed, it's not alumni. Yes, it is. Just go ahead and do a quick breakdown. Alumnus and alumni are a single male or a group of male alumnus alumni graduates attendees of a university so they had to come up with new names when women were allowed to go to college that's exactly right okay yes they did alumna is a single woman alumni is a group of women just alumni pat your knee alumni is a group of women i see this mispronounced all the time and it drives me there's like a hot controversy about this anyway okay alumni she's an alumni of miss porter's we, there will be quizzes when we one day have live shows, so get ready, listeners. There's your trashy divorces <laughs> bingo for the week. All right. Ellen also studies at Briarcliff College, the University of Arizona. She studies drama, which is how she winds up getting on a train one day, headed to Hartford, Connecticut in 1953, where her boyfriend's roommate, Nick, is going to pick her up from the train station. This feels very how I met your mother. It does. And I like it. It, it really does. Yeah. So I'm leaving Ellen. On the train. Okay. Ranching heiress, society lady, all the best schools, Miss Porter's, drama student, heading on a train to Hartford. I bet she's got a little tray of cookies or something that she's sharing with other people on the... Anyway, it is very how I met your mother. She totally is. Dominic Dunn is the second of six children born in a well-to-do Irish Catholic family in West Hartford, Connecticut. His father is an extremely successful heart surgeon chairman of the board of a hospital in Irish Catholic circles. His mom is considered a bit of an heiress. They live in a big gray stone house in the best part of town. Their parents belong to the best clubs, best private schools, Mrs. Godfrey's dancing classes. We were a big deal Irish Catholic family in a wasp city, but we were still the outsiders and swank in the swanky life. Our parents created for us. So at the time, 1930s, like Irish Catholics are not right, right. at all approved in society, but the Duns have enough money 
to be there and play, but it's still very much like almost F. Scott Fitzgerald and that outsider looking in kind of thing, even though we're all playing in the same circles. Dominic does have a younger brother. The fifth of those six children is his brother, John Gregory, who actually does become quite a famous and legendary writer himself. Okay. Who marries Joan Didion. Oh. We're going to talk about okay. both of them within this story, okay. as well as these are really, this really, yeah, like these star-studded. Are, it, it's yeah. Oh, I'm glad. I'm glad you're weird. sitting down. We're not even well. there yet. So, John Gregory Dunn once writes that the family had gone from steerage to the suburbs in three generations. They have the priest to dinner. That's how Irish Catholic the family is. So Dominic Dunn has an aunt Harriet who lives in Hollywood, and he goes out to visit her when he's about nine. Oh. Aunt Harriet is the real deal. This is the aunt you want to have. And I think she would have liked our little podcast a lot. She gives Dominic all the dish on locations. Oh, look at that store over there. Here's the corner where so-and-so met so-and-so. And and here's the set for this. And Dominic's love affair. It was like in the 30s. When was he born again? He was born in 19... I'm sorry. It is okay. 1925. Okay, so yeah, so early 30s. Mid 30s, he's popping mm-hmm. around Hollywood. He little, love affairs. I'm just, born. I'm just picturing the cutest little little gay boy kid wandering, like starstruck. This and, is the unicorn uh-huh, store. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay, it's beautiful. Their grandfather, Dominic Burns, potato famine immigrant who came to the country at 14 and made good, started a grocery store business, ended up a bank president. These are these are mix on the make. And I do not say that to be offensive. I am Irish myself. Mix on the make. It's what they called themselves. Okay. Like when they were kids, they stressed the bank president part <laughs> rather than the grocery store part. I, I bet. I bet. <laughs> the grandfather did do a lot of philanthropy things within the city. And Papa, as they called him, was an extraordinary man, had an enormous influence on both Dominic and John Gregory. He spotted us for the writers we would one day be. He didn't go to school past the age of 14, but he was never without a book. He read voraciously. So on Friday nights, they'd go stay over at Grandpa's, and he'd read the classics or poetry and each give them 50 cents for listening, which was a lot of money, like a huge amount of money to a kid. Well, he's a bank president. (laughs) Yeah, right? (laughs) He's got it. So again, that whole, hey, pay kids to read, it may pay off in the end. Both Dominic and John study with an elocution teacher named Alice J. Buckley because they were both stutterers. You wonder about kids who stutter and stammer at an age. We've seen this a few times. His dad, famous heart surgeon, all accounts a real hero in the world, beats Nikki all the time. Beats him. Can't stand having an effeminate kid. Yeah. The, it is. The, the story of domineering fathers like torturing their yeah their you know unknowingly perhaps gay sons is like old as the hills dominic's like there's something about me that his dad just hated we can read through those like we know exactly what it is that your dad hated and we are so sorry that that happened i'm so yeah uh dad mimicked him dominic nikki is his name in the house to make fun of yeah never feels like he belongs right even in his own family so now they have a family structure that's on the outside looking in and you're in that family structure where you should be able to find some community is the story of gay life in the world that that's exactly it right so his opinion dominic's opinion of himself was just nothing because he believed all the stuff his dad said he calls him a sissy 
and I and Dominic Dunn talks about like in his 80s like that's a word that hurts and lingers it can linger for it may not seem like a big deal to y'all now like our words have gotten much more aggressive but that's it that was so fitting it's a word that lingers for a lifetime so here Dominic is particularly coming from a parent I mean all this messaging you're not good enough you'll never be good enough sure. you're a sissy I beat you every day in 1943, Dominic gets sent off. He's drafted out of his senior year at Canterbury School and sent overseas for basic training. Ends up in combat. Receives a Bronze Star Medal for saving a soldier's life in the Battle of Metz, I think, in 1944. Now, his older brother, he's a second son. His older brother, a lot like Jack Kennedy and his older brother who died during combat, older brother is the bomb. He's the prep school guy. He's the smart one. He's the ha- he is everything that Dominic is not. Gotcha. But now Dominic is one of bronze star. Yeah. Now, yeah. Now he's a war hero. He's a war hero. It's the only time Dad actually quits his criticism. See, like the only good thing he ever did. And like to think of how I don't know, parents traumatize kids, especially gay kids. Yeah. It sticks with him. He returns from war, goes to Williams College. After college, he goes into television in 1950, beginning of first career. Let's benchmark it, 1950. Okay. He, his first gig is as a floor manager or a stage manager. And this is in New York? This is in New York City okay. so, for Robert Montgomery and the Howdy Doody Show. But back when TV was it's live. live. It's no... live TV. Okay. So he's working at Studio 8H at 30 Rock. He is making friends with actors and actresses who are up and coming. Sure. They're not known yet. Kind of like Grace Kelly, Steve McQueen, uh. Joanne Woodward. Like, there's a reason he's able to write about all of this. Because he's right. known these people For decades, yeah. his whole life. And it's so funny to think, like, obviously, you know, all of these people were once five years old. And, you know, were once unknown and were once whatever. Yeah. But, you know, just because of the the year that we happen to be living in, like, many many of these people are, are long dead now. Yeah. Their stardom was... There's such a spider web of... I mean, this is my trash candy. There's such a spider web of history of all of these people that... Right. And, like, and you can't touch one part of the web without another part of the web shaking. Right. It's just fascinating. So, let's bring us to 1953. Dominic working in the greatest city in the world, live TV. He is asked by his college roommate... Hey, can you go pick up my girlfriend? Okay. She's coming in town for this theater opening. I'm still at work. If you could pick her up, bring her to your house. Right. I'll pick her up at whatever time. Yeah. You know it's coming. Cool, cool. We all do favors. Cool, cool. Sure. Yeah, dude, whatever. I'll go get her. It's cool. Sure, man. Dominic Dunn says it was like a scene from a movie. Like he just knew. It was instant. He brings... Ellen, I'm going to call her Lenny because that's what he called. I'm going to interchange yeah. those. So he brings Lenny back to the house. She introduces and passes by mom. And Dominic Dunn's mother turns to him and says, that's the girl you're going to marry. It was the most amazing thing. It just happened. They were in love in six weeks, wedding six months later. Wow. She was a beauty, an heiress, totally comfortable with who she was. And Dominic says he never was. Like that's what really drew right, him right. to her is she was unimpressed by everything he was impressed by she was non-fluffled she was cool really just a cool girl dunn long knew he was gay but he does yearn for that conventional upper middle class life they get married lenny's none the wiser right she's probably found a hot shot holly tv guy and he's a little older and more settled and this 
is written in the stars. Yeah. I mean, you feel bad for her, but I mean, it. go ahead. You're moving to the lighter away from the light. I think that we'll get there. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So Dominic is the most thrilled of anything that his wedding announcement, he and Lenny's wedding announcement, gets the same number of inches in the New York Times as Peter Lawford and Patricia Kennedy's. Oh, wow. Who were also getting married that same year in 1954. Okay. Who will get divorced one year after our couple today. Oh, interesting. Peter Lawford's a dickbag, man. I mean, not. It's a sad story. We gotta, we're gonna talk about him. Okay, they get married at her family's ranch. Then they move out to New York City. There's this amazing bit of this interview I found with Ellen in 1955 where a program is talking about being young marrieds in the city and Ellen's so cute. We met this couple at a party and heard about their building and it just couldn't be more perfect. It's rent controlled and seven rooms near the park. It's just, it's adorable. She's lovely. Like she really just lovely. Their son Griffin is born in 1955. They have another son, Alex as well in New York. Sadly, two more children are born, both girls, but sadly die within a week of their birth. So some trauma. Yeah. Yeah. You know, by 1957, Dominic is brought out to Hollywood by his friend Humphrey Bogart. Oh. Who's like, hey, I'd like you to work on this television version of The Petrified Forest. Why don't you come on out and, you know, come on out and help. See what's up. Yeah. So Dunn gets out there and... Bogey it's like, hey, what are you doing on Friday, kid? Dominic Dunn's like, probably hanging out at the Garden of Allah, you know, yeah, like hanging out in my hotel room. Yeah. Bogey's like, come on over. So Dunn goes over to a party, Bogey's house on Friday night. Frank Sinatra sings. Judy Garland sings. Lana Turner lives next door. Spencer Tracy's there. David Niven is there. Glitter, unicorn, store. Like, Dominic Dunn can't believe it. It's just he... Gets home from the party. He calls Lenny like, babe, we're going to Hollywood. Got some news. You're never going to believe it. We have to move out here. They do move in 1957. This is magical. Yeah. I can't even stand it. Yeah. Star liquor. Yeah. Like, it, yeah. to an extreme. But they moved to Hollywood with Griffin and Alex. Mm-hmm. Dunn works on Playhouse 90. He eventually in his career, so from 57 in Hollywood to when he bottoms out about two decades later... He's going to be executives. He's going to be an executive vice president of four-star television, an executive vice president of 20th Century Fox. Whoa. He is going to produce with his brother and Joan Didion, mm-hmm. John and Joan, a number of really kind of edgy movies in the early 70s, The Panic in Needle Park, The Boys in the Band, some of the first films in the current time period that focused on drugs that focused on gay issues. Like he kind of, I mean, he has an entire career that happens before he begins to write before he's a warrior for justice before he's a warrior for justice. Okay. So they get to Hollywood. They are an instant success. They know everybody. They go everywhere. They give parties. They go to parties. They live in a house on Walden drive. And it's very much like the second coming of Gerald and Sarah Murphy. Oh, right. And their Scott Fitzgerald episode. Okay. And their little circle click cult, they're building and just living well. And if you are, it's the place to be. It is the epicenter of this whole mix of society. Who's there? There's a great book that he puts out in 99 called The Way We Live Then that's pictures and memoirs of all of the scrapbooks because 
He collects scrapbooks. If you reply to one of his parties, he takes your invitation and irons it out and saves it. He's a little obsessive. Really? Even the kids know something is wrong with his star-studded yeah. fascination. Yeah. So who is there? Uh, so Car- so what you're saying is, like, even as a TV and studio executive, he was still kind of, like, fanboying about the stars that he like was working ten, with? Like the nine-year-old kid he is. That's- but now... He- they're, but I mean, his dad beat him. He was never good enough. He was right. Like he is accepted in this he's world. Seeking and the validation. These people are their their friends. Yeah. They know them. Yeah. Um, it is a okay. Who's there? Cary Grant, Betty Davis, Joan Crawford, Jane Fonda. Who's like all of nineteen. She's adorbs. Natalie Wood, Judy Garland, Vincent Minnelli, Christopher Isherwood. If they were famous and hot, they were at the Duns. Paul Newman, Roddy McDowell, San Minio. Okay, so Lenny is a really good friend of Natalie Woods to the point where when the murders at Saleo Drive happened in 69, Dominic and Lenny were divorced by then. Joan Didion recalls how she found out about that. She was Sunday morning in Lenny's pool and Lenny got a phone call from Natalie Wood. Like this is a, these people are, it's a tight community and a tight yeah. circle. Yeah. The... Kids have dinner with the nanny every night. Parents dressed up, pop in. Hey, guys, have fun. We're out. It's dinner and dancing. Kids recall looking out at the banister like it was nothing on a Tuesday night to have a full live orchestra and black tie and dinner and dancing downstairs. Of course. (laughs) Didn't we all grow up that way? Dominic Dunn is starstruck. (laughs) And he talks about he knows it's not going to last. He is so taken with the whole scene. He knows it's going to fall apart. But meanwhile... He's spending a lot of nights on the town, socializing with the Lawfords, develops quite an unrequited crush on Peter Lawford, patronizes an escort service oh. run by a popular bartender, Scotty Bowers. Oh. Yeah. Uh, his kids, again, get this disconnect. Uh, Griffin, first son who grows up to become a successful actor, says his dad art directs the family all the time. It's it's more about perception than what's really happening. So every year for Christmas cards in the summer, they all get in their itchy clothes and everybody has just looks of solemnity on their face. No one laughs, no one smiles. They're patterned after like the royal family Christmas cards. That's okay. Uh, Weird, but sure. They were deadly serious Christmas cards taken in the middle of summer. They weren't your happy Christmas cards, no smiling. They were, look how beautiful this family is. The one year that they take just the most charming picture I've seen of all three Dunn kids. They're all there, itchy clothes. And I guess Griffin's telling the story. Dominic Dunn walks around to click the button on the thing and he ends up tripping. And all the kids are laughing. It is just, but they look like they're having the best Christmas time party ever. Right. They're laughing at their dad who just busted his ass and made a fool out of himself. And is the iron heated up because we need to press out these invitations. It's weird. But it's all appearances. Scenes happening with the Duns in the late 50s, early 60s. In 1964, inspired by a particular scene in My Fair Lady, the Duns are the first to host a black and white ball in honor of their 10th anniversary. It's not Truman Capote. Truman Capote is credited for this party, which happens November 28th, 1966, that he gives in New York at the Plaza Hotel, 
Catherine okay. Graham is who he's giving it for. It's a big deal. Like you hear about the black and white ball. Truman Capote was at the Dunn's party in 1964 getting all the ideas. I will also admit that I don't think I've ever heard about the black and white ball for Catherine Graham. So you're woo right over my it, head. It's a, it's a big party that Truman Capote gives. 450 gonna, bottles of Tattinger champagne. I take your word for spend it. Spend 16K on it. It is the stuff of press and legend. But he stole the idea from but the Dunn's. he stole the idea from the Dunn's. <laughs> and here's what's shitty. You ready? After the party, Truman Capote sends them a thank you note. What a lovely party. How great it was. Dominic Dunn like, glows about Truman Capote. There's a fun story of how they knew each other in their 20s, but we'll talk about that later. The Dunns are not invited to Truman Capote's black and white ball two and a half years later. Writes the nicest thank you note, doesn't invite him to the party. Well, But Truman is a marvelous dancer, which Dominic Dunn says, and was always a delight to have at parties. So I think this black and white ball sort of start. It's a legendary party. 275 people. Tuesday Weld, Billy Wilder, Dennis Hopper, and his first wife, Brooke Hayward. Everybody is there. Like the who's who of it, Hollywood. Absolutely. I'm pretty sure the black and white ball is not the chicken leg. Okay. But it turns into be that. Okay. So, like, they have the idea to have a party. Then the party turns into... Well, we'll take the furniture out of the house. Well, let's paint murals on the wall. Oh let's cover the swimming pool with a dance floor. Oh, my God. It get turned into the kids are at a hotel. The furniture is cleared out of the house. It turns into like Steve Martin, Father of the Bride. Yeah. yeah where yeah. like the party just keeps getting like, woo, right. uncontrollable. Black and white ball happens. Huge success. I mean, this marriage is spiraling down fast. Griffin says of his dad, he was a really superficial guy. Lenny, by contrast. That's what you want your kids to think about you, by the way. Yeah. Well, Uh, I mean, Dominic Dunn spent the last four decades of his life really rebuilding the relationship with his kids. Well, that's good. He... Because he was a really superficial guy when they were young. a really superficial guy and probably a pretty crap father. Star fucker. Yeah. Yeah. Lenny, by contrast, grows up among wealthy and powerful. All this stuff doesn't impress her. Yeah. She doesn't need to be impressed. She's impressive enough on her own. Well, yeah. She, she went to Miss Porter's. She's secure. Yeah, she's secure in her place in yeah, life. And, she didn't need to be famous. In a, in a way that he can't be because his dad beat him up every day for being gay, for being a sissy. That's it. She didn't want to be famous or fame adjacent, but Dominic lacked the substance she craved. Griffin said he needed those parties, they were more important than his family. Griffin talks about Dominic at this time being really flawed and as a human being in development, which, again, so it's a lots of repair, yeah. lots yeah. of decades of work, lots of sober decades of probably asking for mm-hmm. forgiveness and making amends and all that. Oh, sure. so, I mean, Dominic sure. Dunn religiously worked the program once he did once he get got into sober, the program, <laughs> but he's not there yet. Drank Perrier and every like he was a mm-hmm. straight up sober guy. And I think spent the last half of his life tanking account and reckoning for the first part of it. By 1965, Lenny's done. She's had enough. And Dominic and Lenny are driving home on Sunset Boulevard one night. She's being really quiet. They're coming home from a party that he had to go to and she did not want to go to. And she finally just says, hey, I don't want to live like this anymore. It's time to separate. His social ambitions... Probably being gay and his liaisons. He's not really, he's not a drinker yet. 
Like it's it's still manifesting in a secret life of right a secret life of a gay person right star fucking. You know, you've chosen this over your family, and that's mm-hmm. the decision you've made. I'm done with this. Lenny takes the kids on vacation so Dominic Dunn can clear out the house, which is actually a piece. Yeah, it's it's yeah, to the left, to the left. So it's a piece of the plot line in a movie from 1996, Griffin Dunn's first directorial debut, a movie called Duke of Groove. It's about a 30-minute short film. It was nominated for an Academy Award. It follows the story of this nerdy kid who's played by Tobey Maguire, whose mom, beautiful, beautiful mom, invites the kid to a party. And the kid's like, I'm 15 and I'm a nerd. Why am I going to a party? And the mom's like, come on, just, just, I don't want to go alone. And you know, there's like, you can feel there's something else going on, but you don't know what it is. So this whole, like Kiefer Sutherland's in it. Is this aristocrat? And Janice Joplin's there. The mom goes to the party, leaves the kid. He goes on his whole new other adventure. She's on a whole nother adventure. But eventually you come back to the point where they leave the party and they go to the beach. Mom is fucked up. And she's like, listen, your dad, your dad moved out tonight. That's why I needed you out of the house. Your dad moved out. So I think there's some. Right. He's sort of working through that event. Yeah. He, I mean, fantastic little film. It's set a little bit later. It's set like 1970. So it's not as early as the fallout happened for Griffin's own family. But I think there's a thinly veiled account like there's a there's a thread of truth there so I don't know how much of it based on real life events but Lenny did get the hell out she went to the Diddy and Dunn's Joan and Joan and John while he was getting his shit out what's really kind and sweet and wonderful and you can tell the amends he's made Dominic Dunn writes in his 1996 book Another City Not My Own about the OJ Simpson trial but it's just littered it's trash candy but talks about going to griffin dunn's set of duke of groove while he's filming and kate capshaw makes a beautiful peach and isn't she lovely and i know i didn't talk to you you were busy but you looked great son you looked like a real professional and even steven spielberg was watching you and he talked about how great you were doing and I know there's parts of this that reference me and mom, and I'm okay with that. Aww. And I love you, and you're doing great. Like, it's such a, I know, it's a very sweet and tender thing. Yeah, so he's just gushing all in this book like, about yeah. Yeah, okay. Like, I know I've been shit. I know I haven't paid attention. They're filming another miniseries of one of my books. I haven't even been to see that because right. this OJ trial is consuming my life. But just such a moment. I love his novels because he does write so thinly veiled. Right. You know his affection and love and adoration. Like, he and Peach are about to get divorced, but he loves her. And they have such a special bond, and he's got a special, like, right. so sweet. They divorce, 1965. Okay. I'm going to do a little wrap-up. Dominic Dunn spends the next few years really deep-ending, because of a failed marriage, into a drug and alcohol addiction. Hmm. He is walking on some really seedy streets. Again, not thin, like not at all thinly veiled gay writer. And he writes about the scene. Okay. Uh, especially what's an inconvenient woman is just, how do you know? I know how you know all this. He is yeah, making bad decisions, gets arrested in Acapulco for carrying grass on a plane. Mm. 
He's producing some films. His last film he produces is going to be in 1973. He's been riding high. 25 career in show business. Ruined him. Failed marriage, addiction, problems with the law. All of your own making. He bottoms out. Rock bottom occurs. Dominic Dunn decides it's time to make some changes. Sells everything in his apartment, including his dog. Who sells their dog? No one sells their dog anyway. In despair, he leaves Hollywood and goes and lives for six months. Just starts driving north. Ends up at a cabin in Camp Sherman, Oregon. With no telephone, no television. Sobers up and starts to write. And he writes for six months. This time period begins a whole new career in his life. Sober. Reckoning with past mistakes and choices. Reconnecting him to Lenny in a more significant way. Once those amends are done. His kids as well. Making up for past mistakes and trying to build some new relationships. This sober path. This sober writing path does eventually launch him on a new trajectory. We will talk in the next 11 weeks, his post-divorce writing career, Joan and John, murder of his daughter, which happens in 1982. Wow. It's a travesty. Their, their beloved treasure of a daughter, Dominique, born in 1959 in California. I'm not sure if I went back and said that. It's okay. I don't think you did. But I didn't. But they, yes, they had lost... To, they lost they two lost baby two daughters. Girls. In 1959, yeah. they do have a treasured daughter, Dominique. I think I skipped around in my story. Who in 1982 was murdered by her former boyfriend, John Sweeney, who was acquitted of second degree murder, found guilty on voluntary manslaughter, and only served two and a half years. Oh my God. Dominic says the trial was a disaster, hated the defense attorney, hated the judge. Killer got out of prison in two and a half years. The experience, now I'm going to cry, changed me as a person and changed the course of my life. Mm-hmm. Out of that disaster, I began at the age of 50 to write in earnest, right. developing a passion for it I never had before. Oh, I bet. This turns him into a warrior justice for justice, warrior. yeah. Lenny, after living in Beverly Hills for a while after that, does become ill with multiple sclerosis mm. in the early 1980s. When... She and Dominic are attending the murder trial of Dominique, John Sweeney's trial. She's in a wheelchair. Like Her health has not been great. By 1990, she builds a house back on 40 acres of her very favorite land of that 1,000. But I don't want to neglect mentioning something amazing about what Lenny does. After Dominique's death, Lenny founds an organization called the Justice for Homicide Victims. Victims' Rights Organization. Her work is honored by President George Bush at the White House in 1989. She really devotes the rest of her life to the cause of victims have rights to. Mm -hmm. So I think that Dominic and Lenny both sort of found a new calling, a new purpose with the murder of their daughter, which does make you cry. Yeah. Lenny passes away in 1997 losing her long battle with MS. Dominic lives until 2009, continuing to write and warrior justice. He passes away at 84 years old. Nice long life. Nice long life. What a life. Uh, Multiple iterations Mm -hmm. of a life. Mm -hmm. And I don't know, like you're, he painted his own masterpiece. It just took a while to get there. And you're either going to the light or running away from it. Sure. And what a, what a journey. And what a journey of not just him as an individual, but 
the re- like the like Aquarius the Scorpio, the relationship between two people and what they show you and how it can grow and develop. Well, and the degree to which the world changed from 1925 to 2009. Yikes. Ain't that the truth? Yeah. That's my trashy divorce today. There you go. Dominic Dunn and Eleanor Griffin Dunn. Are you, do you feel prepped for what's coming this summer? I definitely. A little I feel, bit more? I feel like, I feel like I am, I have a, I feel like. I just got a, a graduate level understanding of who Thank Dominic Dunn is. Awesome. Without um, having to actually do any work myself. So thank so you. So wait until I go into the next room where you see the wall I've built with yarn yep, and oh. index cards. <laughs> We're going to have so much fun this summer. All right. You ready to take a break? Let's take a break. I can't yeah. wait to come back and hear your story. Let's I, do this. I need more coffee. And we will, we will be back with Frida Kahlo and Diego Rivera. I'm so excited. Let's Painting do this. Painting some masterpieces. Painting some masterpieces. Hey, Trash Pandas. When you need a brain break from your day, let me recommend the game June's Journey for Android and iPhone. It's a hidden object mystery game where you are solving a murder, uncovering family secrets, and, I don't know, exposing official corruption? all in an extremely stylish 1920s setting. Every scene takes you deeper into the mystery and introduces you to an expansive cast of characters as June Parker explores the questions surrounding her sister's apparent murder-suicide at the family's beachfront estate. Add your own elements to the island from lush gardens to gorgeous new buildings. This story has so many twists and turns, Right now, we are on a global journey attempting to rescue June's niece, Virginia. It's a great combo of gameplay. It's a memory puzzle, a design project, an intriguing storyline with genuinely fabulous art. When you want to let your mind wander, relax into this glorious 1920s murder mystery and get lost in the fun. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Sax.com. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. And we're back. And we're back. Ah, Stacy, Alicia. When I paint my masterpiece, you really do have double artist. I don't even know what a double artist is in astrology. Uh, you well, got it this week. You know what? I have a gift for you. So I, I am Tell doing, me. I'm doing I the presents. story of 
Mexican painters uh-huh. Frida Kahlo and Diego Rivera. So good. Twentieth century masters. Yeah. yeah. And yeah, and Frida Kahlo is a twenty first century icon for sure. Hail Frida. Their birthdays. I wrote them down for you. Oh my gosh. Yes. Because I know it is so very important to you. My secret um, plot so, to train you is working out so well. <laughs> it really is. <laughs> Diego Rivera was born on December 8th, 1886 and is a Sagittarius. Okay. Frida Kahlo was born July 6th, 1907. She is a Cancer. Cancer. Ooh, Cancer so Sag mix. Water and fire, which is pretty steamy in our astrology chart. It is. Okay, I'm, uh, that's fascinating. There's a certain logic Cancer to it Sag. being pretty steamy. Go ahead, talk to way. me. All right, so we'll start with Diego just because he's older. So Diego Rivera was born into some money, came from a, a well-to-do family. He was a twin whose brother Carlos died when they were about two. No. So the following year, young Diego starts drawing on the walls of the family's house. And rather than punish him, his parents are like, eh, they put chalkboards and canvas and they like they lined yeah they lined some walls with stuff he can draw on and like let him go what a positive healthy parent promotion activity absolutely not dominic dunn's parents (laughs) no 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 so he begins studying art in mexico city at the age of 10 in the mid 1890s wow that's early. And the governor of the state of Veracruz sponsored his continued studies in Europe starting in 1907. So he heads to Madrid and is working with uh, Eduardo Chichero. Okay. Does that, sound, uh, does that sure. sound right? Okay. Then went to Montparnasse in Paris. Am I saying that what? right? Montparnasse? Yes. Yes. He played in Cubism. He was friends with Modigliani. There's a portrait of him by Modigliani. Max Jacob was a friend. He married... Uh, Jacob. Uh, Jacob, sorry. Max, See, Jacob. I, I figured... What year was this? So he... In Paris? 1910-ish. Oh, so he is there He's for the, the end of La Belle Epoque. La, sorry, La Belle Epoque? La Belle Epoque, the beautiful age. Um, sure, no. Like, up to he, 1914. And he, and he had his first marriage there. Wow. And to another, to a woman artist, and they were friends with Picasso. They like they yes, were part of the Picasso he gang. He was part of all of that. Yes. Wow. So, and also, again, I like, I don't know when, when I say his family was well-to-do, I gathered there were quite a few political connections because, again, the governor sponsored his... Sure. While in Paris, Mexico's ambassador to France, I guess they're having meals together sometimes or something, is like, hey, Diego, you should really, you should go to Italy for a few weeks and check out the check Renaissance out the frescoes there. Wow. because. Those things will knock your socks off. And indeed, they do. So he's already, he's gone through sort of Cubist and then like beyond that, whatever the next wave was post. Well, 1904, 1905, you've got the beginnings of Fauvism. So Impressionism is already in play. Fauvism begins. You've got Cubism starting. Is post-Impressionism what came next? Because anyway, I mean, making of the modern post-impressionism is Fauvism, is Cubism, is Surrealism, is all of these people doing very avant-garde things with art at the time, really from 1904 in Paris up through probably the Depression. I mean, the Paris art scene continued, but that time period was just midnight in Paris. No, I know, there. I know. They, it was it was lousy with. Like artists who are so much unmistakable. Um, okay, go go go! I love the story. Okay, 
So yes, he goes to Italy and he sees these humongous Renaissance frescoes. Blow his mind. And this will, he, he becomes, he is a master of, like, he is a Mexican muralist is what his career becomes. That's, he obviously painted smaller things too, but what made him an international star was these His large-scale mural, mural works. Gigantic, meaningful, a fun backdrop that is relevant to the story. And I will admit that I knew very little about this, and so I'm just really talking out my ass on a Wikipedia page here. The Mexican Revolution began in 1910. Mm-hmm. I had no idea. This led to a nationwide civil war. So it was bloody. It was like a million and a half people died. Wow, really? Uh, half a million people fled the country, mostly to the U.S. Like, wow. it was brutal. And again, like, these are two families in Mexico City. Frida's family was really impacted because her father was a photographer, and at the time... People weren't really hiring like luxury things like come photograph me. I I think it's probably hard when you have a bloody civil war going on to find your best clothes exactly for a picture. And maybe you don't want to flaunt because maybe there's gang violence. Maybe right like there's just a general breakdown. Anyway, around 1917, there is an implementation of a new constitution which apparently rebalanced Mexican society pretty dramatically. To like indigenous people prior to this had just not been part of the narrative of oh, Mexico wow. or the identity of Mexicanness, I think is sort of what I was reading. You know, working classes, poor people, indigenous people are really imp- like their their lot is improved under the terms. They're finally written into the story. Yes. Perfect. Which, uh, you know, it flowers a movement that is called Mexicanidad. Mexicanidad. Probably mispronouncing that. Okay. Which is sort of a rejection of like old style, like colonial and elite notions of, you know, what is culturally appropriate and culturally good and allows for an embrace of the country's indigenous roots. And so with Diego and Frida both, like it is, it is it's really, I think it's critical in understanding the story to know that in their lifetimes, there was a successful popular revolution, although bloody and dangerous, and then this flowering of an embrace of like Mexico's real history and not the one that European settlers had imposed on it. So they've seen the uprisal of a revolution, mm-hmm. the damage that it brings, but also the but, light but after the dawn. It so succeeded. In, yeah. Okay. In the end, uh, it, it did succeed. We like it when the revolutions are successful. <sighs> kind of. the Yeah. At great cost, though. And both of those things are important. Like they both factor. So when Diego returns to Mexico in 1920, he goes to work on a project that's being sponsored by Mexico's education ministry, which had hired a bunch of artists to to create these enormous public murals. Perfect. Celebrating Mexico's actual cultural heritage. Art is a big deal. Well, and it's the new government. It's this new, sure. um, you know, under this new constitution. Like, it's very cool. So Orozco, Siquero, Tamayo, like... All of the who's who of Mexican painters at the time, of male Mexican painters, I'm pretty sure, sure. Uh, are hired into this mural project to go and turn public institutions into, into beautiful places. Yeah, into edifices. And so in 1922, he completed his first mural for the project called Creation at the National Preparatory School in Mexico City. Wow. While he was working, fun fact, he had to keep a pistol on him. Because, again, there had just been a revolution and there were, like, right-wing students who were wandering around the school. Looking and, for trouble? And he's a left-wing. 
like he spent some time in Russia. He was like big. He, he like he was a full blown communist. I mean, he he was again. This is the very the October Revolution was in 1917 yeah. in Russia. So he he's he gets it. He's well schooled in communist ideology. He believes in you know socialism to to eliminate the inequalities of the world. Like he's a political thinker as well as being an artist. It's kind of I bet he can't have a cocktail while he's painting because you don't know if you're pulling your gun or your brush out. Just <laughs> saying. Funny. For I'm pretty, any artist out pretty there Pretty sure Diego ever, was not short on cocktails ever. For okay. any uh, artist out there who's ever had a sip of their paint water ah. instead of their cocktail, you'll know what I'm talking about. Okay, so this moment in Diego's life, 1922, at the National Preparatory School in Mexico City, is a perfect jumping-off point to introduce the love of his life, Frida Kahlo. Yay! So, because that's where she went to school, and that is where they first met. Oh, wow. Uh, So, Frida Kahlo was... Is that a gun in your pocket, or are you just happy to see me? Um, So, Frida was born in 1907 in a suburb of Mexico City, and... I found a couple of sources that speculated... So a little bit younger than Diego. Yeah, yeah. Okay. 21 years younger. Okay, just checking. Mm-hmm. Just making sure yes. I have that age gap right. Yeah, there's a two-decade age okay. difference. Okay, so there were sources that speculate that she may have been born with spina bifida, Ooh. which is where the mm-hmm. the embryo, the spinal column in the embryo doesn't close properly. And this can, this can I mean, this can be a serious birth defect, but because Frida lived with massive back pain all of her life i think that's why people have but there are other reasons that it may have happened too so this is all speculation no one knows for sure just a thought speculation or spankulation speculation we're drinking coffee this morning we are drinking coffee you shouldn't hear spankulation so (laughs) spina bifida or not the fun is really just beginning Mm. for the physical ordeals of young frida okay at the age of six she developed polio which left her right leg shorter and thinner than her left leg oh wow and kept her out of school for a year. So she has a younger sister. She has two older sisters and a younger sister. And she and her younger sister, Christina, ended up going to kindergarten together because she missed a year of school, of school because of polio. It also, contri- like that, she hated her right leg. And this contributed to her adopting Mex- like traditional Mexican dresses, the, the long skirts. To cover it. To cover it. Mm-hmm. She just, it was just a vanity thing that she just hated. Okay, so she goes to kindergarten, then she goes on to other school. Turns out she's kind of a troublemaker. And really? uh, once in school, she was expelled from one school, the German school that her father wanted her to attend because she was his favorite and her father was German. Okay. So she was then sent to like a vocational school for teachers, although her dream was to be a doctor. She was molested by a female <gasps> teacher at the school. What? And so left there. And so then we jump oh ahead God. to 1922. And Frida is accepted to the National Preparatory School as one of only 35 girls in a class of 2,000. Wow. Or in a student body of 2,000. Wow. And so here she first encounters Diego. And she's 15. Like he, nothing. They just, they met. She would sneak into the auditorium and watch him work and... In the uh, 2002 movie of Frida, Mm -hmm. they sort of dramatize the scene. She's dragged all of her friends into a balcony to like lay low and, you know, whisper and watch because he's got a a nude woman, a model that he's painting into his into his creation. And, you know, all the boys that are with her, everybody's just cackling and cracking up. And so theoretically, students were prohibited from going in. This is from 
not the movie. Students were prohibited from going in, but she would sneak in and watch anyway. So in the scene where there's like this fully nude model in the movie, it seems really crazy to think that could have happened in real life, but we're Americans and it's the 21st century and we're really prudish. So now I'm like, I bet in 1922 in Mexico, you totally could be in a high school with your nude model painting away with just like the students have been told not to go in and bother you. Sure. That seems legit. It, yeah. Could have happened. Okay. So I also, I found this lovely quote, the quote, then director of the National Preparatory School where Kahlo went, who had identified her as the leader of a band of juvenile delinquents. Nice. Had even considered quitting his job out of frustration <gasps> with Kahlo's mischief. Like she was a badass. She I was love it. unstoppable despite like she, again, she started school a year late. So she's a little older. Mm-hmm. She, she had some pain. She probably had a limp. She like it just the whole thing. She's just a very interesting character, but her mind is unstoppable and she's apparently charismatic enough to lead a band of juvenile delinquents, which what more do you want in life as a teenager? Small rebel band. I love it. Yeah. Okay. One more background event before we bring our lovers together. Okay. And this is a big one. In 1925, as Frida was riding a bus home from school, there was a devastating collision with a streetcar. Oh, no. I think four people were killed ooh. in the crash. Frida was very nearly killed herself. Oh, uh, she suffered multiple fractures in her legs, ribs, collarbone, and an iron handrail on the bus impaled her like through and through her pelvic bone. Oh, my God. And, you know, I'm not actually sure which side of her body this, but if it was the right side that may, because again, she's got a shorter leg, which I mean, basically over the course of her life, helped any of her previous health problems. Exactly. Over the course of her life, she suffered a degradation of her spinal column. Wow. In effect. And so all of these things just flow together. Also, poor 18 year old Frida Ends up, she's in the hospital for a month, and then she's on bed rest at home for two more months recuperating. You know, her friends are finishing school and going to college and, like, living 18-year-old lives. And life is leaving her behind. So once she had sort of recuperated, she was still in a ton of pain. She was exhausted. She just, everything hurt. So they did some x-rays and found that three vertebrae had been, like, kicked out of alignment. Oh, Lord the accident and so god damn the treatment for this again you're talking 18 year old woman in a vibrant city in a country feeling very fresh and new she is placed in a plaster corset for three months of bed rest uh, that lasts until late 1927 (gasps) so basically from late 1925 to late 1927 from 18 to 20 her life is she's in a eaten up with corset well, yeah, like recuperating in pain in a yeah bed rest corset, like ugh. and it like plaster, like they would have to wrap no it on to her every so often. So yeah, this sucks. She again had dreamed of uh, becoming a doctor, but at this point, like she's she has so much pain to manage. The idea of like medical training and being it's a doctor not, is not a thing. Sure. So in bed. While she's on this three months of bed rest, she really starts painting in earnest. And her father was a photographer and painter. And I think she'd taken classes in in painting at the National Preparatory School. Her family installs mirrors around the bed because apparently initially she was just like sketching her feet because that's what she could see. Oh. It sucks. Right? Like what a crappy life. So 
she starts painting self-portraits. And I mean, this is what Kahlo is mostly known for is these like striking self-portraits, but her work is, there's so much more. So she paints a bunch of self-portraits. End of 1927, like the bed rest is over. She starts to get back on her feet, walking again, socializing, seeing friends, you know, reconnecting, beginning to live the life of a young adult woman again. And she joins the Mexican Communist Party. Well, sure, like you do. Activists and exiles. Like a lot of her, um, a lot of her friends were in, were involved in student politics, mm-hmm. which, and at the time communism was, you know, an up and coming, you know, idea. Anyway, so it, it is through this at a party that she once again meets Diego Rivera. No. Dun, dun, dun. And I think he remembered her from uh, the implications. That teenage kid in the balcony giggled at me for yeah, years. It, that's exactly it. Yeah. So, so she, well, okay. So Rivera by then was quite a famous Mexican muralist and very importantly, a voracious womanizer. Oh. Voracious. Oh. And this would not change even for a day of his life. Wow. So Frida wants to figure out what she should do with her life now that being a doctor is off the table. And she says to Diego, like, hey, I I paint some stuff. You're a famous painter. Can I show you my work? And you can tell me. I need you to tell me straight up. Like, mm-hmm. is this something I'll be able to make a living off of? Because if it's not, I need to go find something else to do because my family's not rich. Like, sure. we, we got money problems and we got hospital bills and we got like... And I got a tough road ahead of me, I can tell already. So how do I support myself in the condition that I'm in? Yeah. 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 So Diego agrees and he was immediately taken by her. Aww. Like we all know why, because we've all seen sure. it. He and he, he said that even though she was a young artist, she avoided a number of things that he considered tricks or gimmicks in her work. It was just it was a very honest, authentic, severe and sincere thing. Wow. Like she never tried to make herself more beautiful, but she <clears throat> she also never tried to make herself less beautiful than she actually was. Like he was, it was just, it was little things that, I don't know, as a professional, he was like, that's... That work is authentic. That's interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Frida knew what Diego was when they started seeing each other soon after. A notorious womanizer? And okay. so did everyone else. Oh, no. And when they married in 1929, her mother was against it. Oh. Diego is... A very tall man, and he and he was a he was a very rotund man. He was a he was a fat guy. Really? Yeah. He's he is a big. He takes up space, like no no two ways about. It. Like Diego's okay. a big guy, and Frida, of course, is a tiny petite. You know, her mother called it a marriage between an elephant and a dove. Oh, mama. <laughs> But Diego was super generous with the family. Apparently, he paid off their mortgage. Oh, wow. Um, you know, just, just nice. They moved to a more rural place outside of Mexico City where Frida was able to sort of explore more about, like, authentic Mexican identity okay. and indigenous culture stuff and, you know, and just sort of be be an anti-colonialist uh, post-revolution communist. Mexican woman and artist. People. Communist. I mean, she was a feminist before the word was invented, sure. too. Uh, again, I was like, wait, it's it's 1920 and you're a woman and you're dreaming of medical school? Like, that's... I don't think that's a common thing that women dreamed of at that time in most countries. Like, it's just... 
But I think as when you if you're if you're communist, you can do anything. They let well, you. Not just that, but look at any time period <laughs> across the globe post revolution. So you had the same sort of happening in the US with the end of World War One, right? You've got flappers, you have women gaining their own agency, you've got the nineteenth Amendment allowing women right. the right to vote in nineteen twenty. So Mexico goes through a similar upheaval in what's going on in their culture and society and it breeds all of these new exactly ideas and possibilities and opportunities and hope where maybe you weren't having those in a more like before the society went through its shift right changes man yeah 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 and yeah i feel like these two really really are just emblematic of of a particular set of changes that that were occurring okay so in the early 1930s They lived on and off in the United States because Diego kept getting mural commissions like for the San Francisco Stock Exchange and the Detroit Museum of Art and Rockefeller Center came later. That's a very famous one. The 30s? So depression is hit and they're working like public works administration stuff. Kind of. Yeah. 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 I'm not sure the public works administration had actually started yet, but definitely I think Diego's work inspired a lot of the artists who ended up being... Like core to that. That sounds right. So they're in San Francisco for a year. uh, And then that turns into jobs in New York City. Diego had a retrospective at the Museum of Modern Art. Wow. Then they head to Detroit for 1932. And Frida was not happy. She was not really happy. She liked San Francisco and New York. Detroit she did not like. But she was really uncomfortable in the United States, because they are moving among, like, the one percenters of the day. Mm. Like, you know, Henry Ford is throwing parties for them. Like, that kind of thing. So they're with the high-crust upper society set, and America is suffering through a goddamn and the depression. Great, and people are starving to death. Yeah. So, it, and she and Diego are communists, and these are, like, the, the preeminent capitalists of the era. Talk about not fitting in. Not fitting <laughs> in. She was just uncomfortable with, like, the rich people that they were meeting, and she felt that they were boring and heartless. She wrote to a friend, It's terrifying to see the rich having parties day and night while thousands and thousands of people are dying of hunger. Wow. But, I mean, from a 2019 perspective, consider this. So the year that she was uh, in Detroit, 1932... Congress, in order to combat the Great Depression, did, like changed the law so that incomes over two hundred thousand dollars, which is about like around three million today, were taxed at sixty three percent. Wow! That rate would increase to ninety four percent by nineteen forty four. And wow. so, compared to today's one percenters, the Fords, the Rockefellers, the Goodyears, like all these, you know, titans of industry, they were givers, man. They were givers. Well, they were givers on purpose, but look at what we were able to do. Well, they build were build roads, build but infrastructures. But I mean, we, we also expropriated a lot of their wealth to make More. sure that, yeah, that we could survive uh, another day. Anyway. You know what? I don't want to hear a word about Elizabeth Warren's 2% tax over uh, not a million. Yeah. Can't. I'm done. No, I mean, like, I want to hear all the words. No, I want to hear all yeah. the words about that yeah. because... But I don't it's think a, that's a bad plan. Yeah, it's that that that's not a pain point. See, for, what's fun about trashy divorces is it's all repetition. What is past is prologue. Like yeah. we can always find that's a really solid current legal fact today. That was like, nice. Well observational. done. Observational. Thank you. Got thank it. Thank you. Thank you. Continue. 
Another thing happened in their year in Detroit. Frida got pregnant. Oh. It was not her first pregnancy oh. during the marriage. Okay. And she had previously had an abortion. I don't know. Like, uh, I read that she was ambivalent about being a mother. I suspect that having spent several years of her life laid up from illness, she was ambivalent about whether her body could That's have exactly, a pregnancy yeah. and whether... I have a feeling the idea of she she was probably allergic to constraint. And I, I think that's kind of how she lived too. Like just couldn't Don't tie me down. Yeah. She'd she'd been in plaster corsets enough. Right. Like anyway, she had previously had an abortion. Again, lives with chronic pain, has a history of infirmity. So she becomes pregnant in Detroit, sought an abortion, was given drugs to make this happen, and they didn't work. <sighs> so the abortion failed. And the doctors were like, "There's, I mean, you, you just got to be pregnant. And she was like, okay, I'll just be pregnant then. Except a few weeks later, she miscarried and suffered a terrible hemorrhage oh. with the miscarriage. She ends up hospitalized for two weeks. Oh, my God. Which are apparently just horrific for her. And ends up painting a painting called Henry Ford Hospital. And I think this is the first example of, there's a way that... Kahlo indicates agony in her paintings where she will have like a nude figure that is basically herself, but a nude figure on a bed where like the torso, the upper body, the arms are splayed in one direction and the legs, knees are splayed in the other. So it's Um, aesthetically like incongruent. It's yeah. Um, And then in this painting, there are, there are six objects. There's like an orchid, there's a fetus, it was a it was a boy that she miscarried, and it was anyway. This was apparently deeply traumatic to her. She paint this painting is. We will either put it on the website or link to it from okay. the website. I'm not sure what the copyright stuff is on on that. So we'll figure it out. We'll figure it out, and we will make sure that Henry Ford Hospital and many other uplifting and disturbing Frida Kahlo paintings <laughs> are, are there for to. you to see. Yeah. And then a few months later, her mother died. So it was just a, oh, it was no. a very, 1932, 33 was bad a year. very bad time for her. Also in 33, Diego is hired by the Rockefellers to put a mural onto 30 Rock, basically. No way. In, inside 30 Rock. Really? In the lobby. Okay. And Diego, communist he is, chafing at his interactions with all these like capitalists, paints a mural that includes Lenin and Marx and just like communist insurgency on but that went over great the f- they tore it the <gasps> fuck down seriously they told him to to change it and he refused to change it and they sent jackhammers in to remove that wall and build a new one. Oh my god yeah it's mm-hmm. wow yeah the rockefellers don't play anyway so i think he did ultimately do that mural elsewhere we'll again link to that okay Wow. But it was like, it, it was called like Man at the Crossroads. And so you can imagine that this Mexican communist, like wandering American inequality, had a lot to express about Man at the Crossroads. Uh, Frida did a painting that was called My Dress Hangs Here, that was, and I think this was in Detroit. It was just like this chaos of Americanness with a line hung. I think it's between a toilet and a trophy. Oh, wow. And a Mexican, a traditional Mexican dress. Oh, wow. Hanging on the line. She did another one, like, Me at the Border, 
that like on one side it's all like smokestacks and grossness and darkness and evil and on the other it's like the mexican pyramids and flowers and, pastoral and just theme. Yeah, yeah like just fascinating work wow just i mean you can see you can both of these people were really really driven by these particular notions of identity and notions of fairness and like notions of how the world should work and it, you know, caused them some problems and it fueled great art. So. Art is going to art. Art is going to art. Okay, so let's catch up on the thing that makes the marriage of Diego and Frida so interesting, so peculiar, and so, to use the word that seems to be constantly applied to it, volatile. Okay. It's the infidelity and Ooh. it is constant. Before they were married, but possibly during one of the two earlier marriages of Diego Rivera... He would joke that he once asked a doctor for a note affirming his inability to be faithful. He was not hiding the fact that he was a dog. I mean, that's something. At least you're not. Don't. Right. Be what you are. Right. Don't be a hypocrite about it. So it seems like Diego continued doing what he had always done, which was sleeping with his models, sleeping with his admirers. Wow. And that though, you know, Frida knew that it was likely to be this way, it, it really in practice, really tore at her. And it's weird. There are sources who say that they had an open marriage. That does not seem to be the case because it wasn't like they were, I don't know. Do you think she went in thinking, oh, I can change him? Probably. Do you think there's part of that there? Maybe. One, assume she was, what, 22 when they married? I can change him. He just hasn't met me yet. Yeah. That had to be there, right? Like, Like, yeah, all you other bitches just weren't weren't enough whatever like hey, I'm when sure people some of tell you what they are L- believe, believe them. them so yeah the idea that they had an open marriage at least by today's understanding because i mean we know people with open relationships and they like discuss the people that they like one of sure. them may want to be involved with that kind of thing that wasn't going on here maybe open marriage meant something different in the 30s i don't know he was just a blatant he was infidelitor and yeah he was he was adultery all the time um so but as a result she felt not particularly constrained to be faithful to him i mean two can play by your game whether i mean again i'm not sure going in whether she felt like that would be the case or not like that's what's that's what's kind of mysterious i'm sure if i read you know something 20 more hours about this sure if i spent 20 more hours on this (laughs) I would know this, but anyway, so Frida also had numerous affairs, starting pretty early, 1931 in San Francisco, American-Hungarian photographer Nicholas Murray, Murray, M-U-R-A-Y, was her on-again, off-again for like the rest of the decade. Wow. Yeah. So Diego didn't seem to care much. So nobody's talking about we're going to get divorced. It's go fuck who you want we're still married and gonna travel around together and do our thing i think discretion is called i don't i yeah it's yeah we're gonna travel around i don't want to see it diego did not like it when she when she saw men Uh, diego didn't care when frida Kahlo took up with women sure so that's an so she did take up with women as well quite a few okay so lots of lovers on both sides on (laughs) both <laughs> okay, so the affair with Nicholas Murray was not the only affair. It was not the most significant affair 
even even though it may have been the longest running. In 1934, you know, her mom has died. She's had the Henry Ford Hospital thing in Detroit, like a whole thing. 1934, they go back to Mexico, Mexico City. Diego begins an affair with Frida's younger sister, Christina. No. The one she ended up in kindergarten with because she lost a year. Like Her baby they've, sister? They've been like this. And Christina was married and had two kids, but her husband was abusive and then had abandoned her after the birth of their second son. Oh, God. So, you know... Diego and Frida come back to Mexico City and like as like as happy champions. to be home. Yeah, and and like yeah, we we want America. Like cool. So famous and painters then he starts fucking around with her sister. Sister. Yikes. Um, yeah. So Frida was having more health problems. She like around this period she has a surgery for appendicitis. Like appendix is out. Several of her toes became gangrenous. I think on, again, that right leg was not getting blood flow properly. So those got amputated. She had another abortion. And she was taking a ton of medication too, which may also have factored into... Also, she loved tequila. Let's not downplay that. Like by the end of her life, Frida Kahlo was a serious... Like she was stuck in a hospital by one of her doctors once to dry out because she was a significant... But so was Diego, I think, like significant alcoholic. They they lived yeah. they lived well. She died young. They lived there was excess. Yeah. I'd rather die while I'm living than live while I'm dead. There you go. So, you know, she's just she's trapped in this body that is a fresh nightmare daily. Wow. She's painting it out, but still she's trapped in it and she discovers the affair with her sister in 1935 and is heartbroken. I saw Natch. Oh, there was one source that was like, and it really hurt her feelings. Oh, really? <laughs> you think? <laughs> okay, she moves out. She's like, "Fuck this! You guys Good both for her. suck." Her sister was also heartbroken. Like, didn't like that. Obviously, wasn't what her sister intended. She paints a painting called "A Few Small Nips." This is a. It's to me. I mean, it's it's disturbing, but it's also very funny. Uh, and it's got that same setup where it's a woman on a bed. Top splayed in one direction, legs splayed in the broken. other. Okay, uh, covered in covered in stab wounds, <gasps> and next to the bed is a a man holding a knife or killer. You know, blood spatter on it, like oh. and true crime adjacent. It is. It's tr- it was a murder case that was in the papers around this time, and Mm-mm. the judge, like he, I don't know, the guy had stabbed his wife or girlfriend like twenty something times, oh and the God. judge is like, "Why did you do that?" And the guy goes, ah, it was just a few small nips. <gasps> yeah. So she she paints herself, and, you know, basically that's Diego with the knife. Wow. To reflect her feelings about the affair with her sister. Wow. Just, man, she did not hold back. Like, she was a brave storyteller visually. She did reconcile with Diego and with her sister later okay. that year. Their affair ended, obviously, she moves back in by the end of 1935, but this marriage is deeply wounded, and the infidelities continued. Like they're, it's not like they were like, you know what, we we might want to try a different way. <laughs> oh no, no. 1937, Diego and Frida, who are both influential communists, worked with the Mexican government to win asylum for Russian dissident Leon Trotsky. Oh wow! And they. Well, he had opposed the rise of Stalin in the Soviet Union, and so Stalin was after him. Sure. They move him into Frida's dad's house, he and his wife. And it's a good place to hide out. 
Um, yeah, it is. Well, and he's got a ton of bodyguards. Like, there's it, it's a big deal. It's a it's a production. And Frida starts an affair with Trotsky because she knows that'll hurt Diego. Oh, God. Because, like, Diego was expelled from the Mexican Communist Party because he was a Trotskyite back in the day. There's this whole thing. Like, Trotsky was basically his hero. So Frida is like, you fuck my sister? Watch this. Uh... You know, paints him a painting. Like, is she, you know, it didn't last long, but it was enough to really stick it to Diego. So this is, I mean, they're, they've been married less than a decade, and this is what their marriage has turned into. They the are chicken legs. Name is Trotsky. Good God, they are they are competing in fidelities. It's this grudge match of sex with other people. It's really weird. So, thirty eight French surrealist André Breton Breton, Breton famous French surrealist visits Diego and is loves Frida's work. Is like you are a surrealist. He describes her paintings as, quote, a ribbon around a bomb, which is like the fucking coolest thing you could possibly say. Sets her up with a show in New York with art dealer Julian Levy and offered to arrange a Paris showing as well. Oh, wow. So off she goes to New York for the show. Fantastic. Uh, She's there for three months. It is spectacular. She sells half the art that's on display. And, you know, over that three months has at least three affairs, including with Julian Levy. Wow. Then hops on. Oh, and uh, Nicholas Murray was there. So, oh, sure. Sure. You know, keeping it going, keeping it going. She heads to Paris, you know, just hop across the pond where her sexual exploits included an affair with American expat stage sensation Josephine Baker. Love it. Apparently she took a run at Georgia O'Keeffe one time, but O'Keeffe Fantastic. was was sick and like nothing Not really happened. But she, huh. she remarked that like it, it was apparently a lifelong disappointment for her that. It, nothing happened with Georgia O'Keeffe. Wow. <laughs> I know it's a little off-brand for us to be, like, applauding the infidelity, but some of these stories are it's just funny. Okay. I mean, it's one thing. Uh, you're, in, you're into a marriage contract where infidelity is approved and encouraged. So, listeners, Trashy Divorces does not condone infidelity in any way in your marriage. Where it's a lie. Unless it's part of your vows. I, yeah, basically. Go for it. Okay. So... Frida herself is something of a sensation in Paris. The Louvre purchased one of her paintings and she was the only, I think, Mexican uh, Mexican artist or Latin American artist to end up in the Louvre's collection in the 20th century wow. or before. Anyway, at the time. Okay. She was it. She appeared on the cover of Vogue, <laughs> French Vogue. She returns to Mexico City late in 1939 and Diego has begun a high-profile affair oh, with uh, a famous actress who joked that she she was beautiful and she joked that she had a thing for ugly men. And so in the press, because again, what? this was a high-profile affair. This was referred to as the Beauty and the Beast. <gasps> Diego thought maybe she would want to marry him. So he asks for a divorce and Frida's like, fine, cool. I mean, you know, their friends are like, like they just... They just kept fucking other people and it just kept wearing away at their marriage and and ultimately so. Uh, I did, okay, I found one sentence from Frida that I thought was so like just in in sort of defending this pattern of infidelity to biographer, to a biographer. She said, I do not think the banks of a river suffer by letting the water run. Wow. I mean, given the amount of hurt that these people inflicted on each other, I think this is not necessarily an honest statement 
Welcome to a Cancer and a Sagittarius. Steamy. Mm. Okay, so despite being divorced, they stayed really close. Like, she handled his correspondence and, like, I don't know, to, just, to, just they continued to be close. Because this is another interesting and peculiar thing about their marriage and their divorce. They're absolutely passionate about each other. Like, in spite of all these ways that they continually wound one another, they love each other as artists, as friends, and as comrades in a political struggle. You know, Diego was just unable to show her any fidelity, and she just ultimately gave up on needing to show it back to him, which kind of makes sense. But that is not the end. The trashy divorce. They're trashy divorce. They're done. Of Frida and Diego. It doesn't take. What? It doesn't stick. Oh, no. In 1940, Trotsky, who by this point had moved on to different lodgings in Mexico City, was murdered by, you know, some of Stalin's people, like a Mexican-born Soviet agent, whatever. It was Trashy Divorce's bingo card is lit. Right. But like, (laughs) because of the affair, he and Diego had been fighting. And so Diego was briefly considered as a, well, actually for several months, was considered a suspect. Really? Diego skips town and goes to San Francisco. Frida and her sister actually are both rounded up and held in custody for a couple of days under oh suspicion of having something to do with it. He was like beaten with an ice pick or something. Like there was kind of, it was probably not. Just some small nips, <laughs> Stacy. <laughs> Great. Anyway, so that was that was the end of Leon Trotsky for, for the Russian revolutionary set that listens. But wait, they're divorced. They are divorced. Frida travels the following month to San Francisco for more medical stuff. She's got an infection in her hand. Her back pain has, like, amped up for whatever reason. Again, her spine over the course of her life is degrading. I mean, she she's, crum- yeah. she's literally crumbling. It It's very sad. So, anyway, she goes to San Francisco, and the the doctor... Basically, I guess Diego knew the doctor as well, and the doctor is like, Diego, come on, like... She's your wife, and she's going to need some extra care. Like, this isn't getting better. So they reconcile, and they remarry. Wow. Possibly so that Diego could assuage his guilt by, you know, helping to care for her. I mean, she lives for another 15 years or so, but this is, it's, yeah. The rest of her life was marked by escalating physical pain. She went through 28 separate supportive corsets to try to ease this back pain and her spinal problems from 1940 to 1954. These went from plaster to leather to steel. Oh God. There's an outstanding painting of hers called broken column that shows her nude wrapped in, I don't know how to describe it. It's not a solid, it's not a steel plate. It is like steel bars that wrap around around her her in a cage. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then you know, like between her breasts, like the center line of her of her um, torso is is removed and shows it's a it's a broken column of her spine. Just seriously. I mean, I hate that this was what she dealt with, but the art. Ugh. OK, so this hand infection just became like a permanent thing. It just wouldn't go away in the mid 40s. She lost the ability to stand or sit for long periods. Oh, no. I bet this was a super fun trip. In light of that, she traveled to New York for a pretty risky like bone graft and insertion of a steel rod to try to straighten out her spine and, and make it easier for her to, to sit, stand, move. Surgery failed. Oh, no. 
And, you know, at this point, she had been drinking heavily for years and years and years. So she's not doing her body any favors. No, she does not follow doctor's orders. Apparently, she she reopened the wound at one point in a fit of anger. Like it's So it's hard to know whether the surgery would have been more successful in a different patient. But in, in Frida Kahlo, it was not a success. So uh, over the course of her short life, she died on the 13th of July, 1954, at the age mm. of 47. Frida Kahlo endured more than 30 operations and lived with what was eventually unendurable pain with infections chewing away at her limbs. So that right leg that she had hated since she was six, covered with the giant flowing skirts, and that eventually got amputated because of gangrene. Yeah, just terrible. Diego called the day of her death the most tragic day of my life. He died three years later, but he did marry one more time because he's Diego. Well, sure. And this, I thought this was so sweet. He, he had expressed a hope that his ashes, when he did die, would be commingled with Frida's. No. But it wasn't to be. Hers are displayed at the Blue House, where she was born and died. And the Mexican government buried Diego at the National Rotunda of Illustrious Men. <laughs> Live in such a weird world. Really weird world. Really sexist, weird world. <clears throat> the Blue House, though, where she spent her childhood, and she really spent most of her life there. There's a very cool, briefly in their marriage, I think it's the San Angel House. It's two houses connected by a footbridge on the top level. It's very, it's, it was a very modern uh, 1940s kind of structure. Apparently, Frida always kept her door on that side locked, though, so Diego actually couldn't come across and oh, say hi. Sweet. So. Perfect. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, these are two giants of the art world, although Frida's work didn't gain the enduring respect that it deserved until it was rediscovered a generation later. And she became iconic for just a variety of identity groups. So feminists, Chicanos, queer folk, like all manner of weirdo, you know, people with chronic conditions. Long live Frida. Long live Frida. And as a figure in popular culture... She's really had the last laugh. She became the first Latin American artist whose work auctioned for more than a million dollars when Sotheby's sold Diego and I for $1.43 million in 1990. Mm, wow. I think one of her pieces went for $8 million more recently. Mexico has declared her work like part of Mexican cultural heritage, and it is against the law to export original art by You're Frida kidding. Kahlo that is really? in Mexico. You can't take it wow. out of the country. So anything that's not currently in Mexico is is free to be sold on the market, but otherwise it must stay in Mexico. Wow. Yeah. It's very clear that Diego and Frida had a lifelong love for one another, even if their marriage was highly atypical and sometimes broke down entirely. Want to do trash cans? I I need to take a breath for a second. That was an amazing story. Yeah. I didn't know... I didn't either. I knew Any I knew of some of it. I knew she had chronic pain. I knew like her paintings are pretty straightforward in communicating that. The emotional pain she I mean What a fantastic trashy divorce. Like as a I don't know, as somebody in the audience, like it again, you don't want to like cheerlead pain, but boy does great art come from it. Well, and that's a, like what you go through and what you endure defines you. Like you look at Diego and the Rockefellers like, nope, we got to take that down. We want to pay you as an artist to use your amazing soul as an artist to do something unique as an artist. But no, we don't approve of that. Not that. Yeah. (laughs) Powerful people getting away with shit. Yeah. 
It's Oh, for sure. For sure. Okay. Great story. Beautifully done. Thank you. Thanks. That was a lot of fun. I feel like maybe on some level you're a little in love with Frida Kahlo. A little bit. I, that was a different narrative than you've ever told. I, I, was, I was, by the time I, I mean, yeah, I was kind of crushing on her. I'm not, not going to lie there. Do you think our new yard cat is going to be named Frida Kahlo? Frida Catlow? Frida Catlow. Frida Catlow. Listeners, let done. us know. Let us know I what you think. Done. Frida Catlow out back. All right. Trash cans. Trash cans. Yeah. Dominic Dunn and Lenny. I, I mean, sweet story. 15 year marriage, three kids. What a family pull it to good story at the end. Justice for warrior, but a homosexual going in like, I don't know, three. It balances out. Maybe. I mean, it sounds like, it sounds like he was so like superficial and yeah, just like a shitty husband and father for a good stretch of for, time yeah, there. The- Length of the marriage? Yeah, I can say yeah. three. And, and the escort services. Yeah. Kind of thing. yeah. Okay, three. Yeah. Three, three. Three and works. Half. Yeah, three. Yeah. I, I mean, he's he's the godfather. I don't know about three and a half. Candy. It seems like he... It's... I'm going to go middle. I'm going to go three. 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 Okay. Yeah. I, I think I think that's good. Okay. Well, what have you got? So, again, like, by the end of this, I was just like... I'm in love fr- with Frida Kahlo. Frida Kahlo, maybe my, my dream woman. But as trash cans go, I, I think this one definitely deserves five. There's just... You know, but it's like five with less scorn than we usually heap upon. No, a five it's totally can- approved infidelity. Like, go for it's it. It's not. But- no, it. That's that's what I'm saying, though. It but it's wasn't. Not. It was. They were constantly hurting each other with their affairs. So it. So it wasn't. It's that's what's okay. so strange. I think they thought they were being very modern and maybe very European about their relationship. And they weren't. He's been to France. He knows how it works. Well, he's been to France. He's been married in France. And then he had a kid out of wedlock in France while Jeez. he was married in France. <laughs> okay. I'll go five. Five. Yeah. Five. But, you know, again, with less scorn, it seems like Diego was just uniformly and pretty openly adulterous. And what lists I could cobble together of Frida's lovers during the marriage was long and very well balanced between men and women. Good like for her. She just, she, she ate the world and... It killed her, but I don't know. Like there, there is something heroic in her story. Frida Kahlo is badass. She's badass. She's badass. So pretty good up. Trashy divorces. Thanks everybody for tuning in. Yeah, thanks for listening. That was a lot of fun. We hope you enjoyed. I feel like I want some tequila now. I feel like I just want to immerse myself in Frida Kahlo art. I'm just. I've lost you, haven't I? uh I've lost you. All right. Well. Maybe you can go visit your new yard cat outside. Frida Catlow. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in. We appreciate you. See you next week. See you next week. Keep it trashy. Keep Stay single. It trashy. Marry Diego Rivera and have a thousand affairs. <laughs> Don't do that. Or stay single. <laughs> stay single and keep it trashy. Bye, Until y'all. next week. <laughs> And thanks to you for listening. Trashy Divorces is a Hemlock Creatives production created and produced right here in Atlanta, Georgia by us, Stacy and Alicia, with a little research and writing help from the brilliant Melissa O. Our art is by Sydney V. Smith. That's Sydney V. Smith at carbonmade.com. And our music is used with permission of Ratsy. Check her out at Ratsy's store on Instagram. And definitely drop into Ratsy's store anytime you're in Oberlin, Ohio.
You can contact us at trashydivorces at gmail.com or find us on the World Wide Web at trashydivorces.com. If you need more trash candy in your life, our Patreon community includes some of the very best humans around and thousands of hours of bonus content at every level of support. Join the fun at patreon.com slash trashydivorces. Interested in some Trashy Divorces swag? Check out our merch shop and Trash Panda Enthusiasm Society at bit.ly slash trashy gear. Want to advertise with us? Reach out to sales at advertisecast.com for more information. And last but not least, come play with us on social media. I keep most of our Trashy Divorces Instagram hopping. Stacy and I share it up over on Facebook, including our Trashy Divorces podcast discussion group. Come join us over there and thanks again everybody for listening. Keep it trashy y'all.